Good morning to all of you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You made it. You sprang forward with no reminders from any of us. I went to bed last night and I was like, you know, scrolling through Instagram and I have a lot of churches that I follow and I'm like, oh, yeah, that would have been a good idea to let people know. Those are on it churches and I was not as on it. So Good on you. Um, we're going to set our alarm this morning for 1130 and just turn around and watch who walks in the lobby. Does that sound good? Yeah, because we're all about shame here. Yeah, uh, not really. Okay, I'm going to get to what I'm really supposed to be doing, and that is giving you announcements about things that are going on, things that are coming up around here. Um, first of all, we have... Yeah, we have our life groups. Um, this is actually the last week for you to sign up for those, and you can do that by texting the word group to the Brookview number or going to that online connect card, and those groups will start March 20th, and they go through May, end of May, early June for those as well. We have our spring clean coming up next Saturday. How's the date looking? Is it? Is it good? Okay, Tim, you happy about that? Okay, good. Um, we are excited to just like roll up our sleeves, dig in, and use some elbow grease in some areas that really need it, like vacuuming the chairs. And um, we're going to work inside. We're going to work downstairs. We're going to work outside as well. And we would love to have you come for that. It's from 10 to 2. Even if you cannot come the entire time, we'd just love to see you and put you to work and have you meet a few people. That's one of the coolest things about it to me is that you get to work alongside of people that you may not know that well, and it's an opportunity to chat while you're also, you know, busy doing something. It's so much better than coffee, right? Hi, how are you? At least you can talk about weeds or something as you're pulling them. Okay, so please come to that. We will have lunch for you. Um, we'd love it if you gave us a heads up about the fact that you're coming. That just helps us plan for food. But if you didn't RSVP, we still want you to come. We will go to the store if there isn't enough food and buy enough food so that we can have workers. So please come to that whether or not you're able to RSVP to that next Saturday. This Saturday, this coming Saturday. Um, the other thing is I have kind of a fun, exciting celebration to share with you. Um, so, and it dates all the way back to, and I feel like we should go, COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So many of you guys know that we have a partnership with the Nourishing Network, which is out of the Edmonds School District Foundation, and it serves families in need in, the, um, in our area. And specifically, we partner every month at Cedar Way Elementary School, just down the street from here, to bring in a, a food pantry. And we started that partnership with Cedar Way at, in um, the fall of 2017, and like, look at how old that is. Um, and what we would do is we would set up this pantry and we would let families come in and there were five or six families that would participate in it. They would come in and look at the tables and kind of shop for things that they thought that their family needed, food and supplies. And so that's kind of how that thing started. And we were just kind of floating along and we would pick up a family here or there or just it had some traction but not a ton. And then COVID hit. And we all went into lockdown. And um, we started to have to shift the way that we did things. So once we were allowed to be together again in the fall of 2020, I 
right? That's, that would be correct. Okay, fall of 2020, no, 19, because 2020 was COVID hit. Yeah, okay, yep, yeah. Okay, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't even matter. You guys all know what it felt like. Let's just lean into the feelings. Okay, so in the fall, we decide, okay, we can do this. We will wear masks and we will gather up all the groceries that we can and we will put them in cars as they pull up and we'll have disinfecting wipes and gloves and I mean really like shielded to be able to put things in these cars. We started serving 30 to 35 families at that point and people there was just a need and um, there was a woman there because the school district also would bring in their food services workers and they would put five days worth of lunches into cars as well when they would pull in. And so I got to know some of the food service workers from the district and heard some of their stories. And um, as then things starting to lighten up a little bit, um, and I don't even remember when that was, but there was a short season where we thought it was over, right? And we were going to be maskless and we were going to go back to school and I was talking with this woman, and she basically said, I'm really nervous about having masks off. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, you can probably still wear a mask. And she's like, no, I, I don't want to wear a mask. But I um, went through two years of cancer treatments, and it left my teeth basically all broken, and I don't have teeth. And I, the kids haven't ever seen me like that, and I'm just afraid that if I smile at them, they're going to be afraid of me and I'll be the only one wearing a mask. And I was like, oh, that's really hard. That didn't sit well with me. I was like, really? Just because of money, you're living like this because you can't afford it. And she didn't have the insurance benefits that she needed because COVID made them go to part-time work. And so she didn't have her benefits anymore. It was just heartbreaking. Simultaneously at church during COVID, when we were live streaming only, we weren't gathering together. Every Sunday, I would stand up here to an audience of chairs and say, and this was the thing, we're in COVID. We want to hear from you. If you know of anybody that has a need, if you have a need, if you want to help with needs, will you let us know? And so many of you guys, and those of you that are watching from home as well, you signed up to help with needs. Like, it was so cool. So at that moment, I was like, mm, we have people that I know maybe would want to help. And so anyone that signed up to help in that COVID season, I just laid out the story and said, there's this woman, and I would love to get her some tea. And um, generosity just started pouring in. And within a month, um, two years ago, I was able to tell her, we want to pay for your tea. And she obviously was very blown away by that. And so I got the nickname, the Tooth Fairy, every month, every month. Like, there's the Tooth Fairy, and everybody knew I was the Tooth Fairy. I was like, I don't want to be the Tooth Fairy. But okay, um, I will just lean into that. And so she began, we kind of researched, and we had raised enough money to buy her the nicest set of dentures that the clinic we had looked at her going to would allow her to have. Well... She then uh, went in for her consultation appointment, and it turned out that she had to have several surgeries because there were some unique things going on in her mouth, and there was a lot of pain and a lot of process, 
a lot of hard things for her, and the cost almost doubled. And so, um, thankfully, out of your guys' faithful giving to church, just when you show up and you give, we're, uh, we're able to be a blessing in our community in those ways. And so we were able to pick up the leftover money that it cost. And I called the denture clinic and said, okay, and whatever else we need to pay, I want you to let me know. And she says, if there's anything else to pay, we will be covering that because of what you've done. And um, so it was just this concert of really beautiful things. And I touch base with her every once in a while, but never want her to feel like I'm going, hey, where's your, where's your teeth at? You know, just, I, it's been pretty quiet. And she's not at Cedar Way anymore because she's back to full-time work, thank goodness. Um, and I got this random text after not hearing from her for about eight months, and this was what I got. And um, so, so beautiful. And I just want to share it with you. Those of you that are watching online, we don't have that photo. That is the privilege for those of us that are here simply because we want to give her um, dignity. I did ask for her permission to share this, and she was excited to have you guys know. I just didn't want that to be something that stays forever online. Um, but what a beautiful thing. Thank you for the way that you partner with each other, with us, to do amazing things. Um, and I am just so excited for more. Like, that is a small sliver of what we get to do as the body of Christ. And, um, I mean, can we just clap? I just feel a clap. Yeah. Again, thank you. And so I will leave you with this. Fill out your online communication card. We'd love to hear from you. I was supposed to do that before I gave you that announcement. All right. Um, I feel like praying. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. That's the moment I'm in. God, man, you're good, and you are generous, and the way that you work out details is really beautiful, and I love what you did for this woman. I love that you met her in her point of need, that she has a smile that she is so proud of, um, that we got to live your story in front of her in a way that um, she was grateful for, and there was never a moment that she felt like someone owed her something. She just had overwhelming gratitude. And what a humbling thing that is when we are on the receiving end of something. Um, but thank you for letting us do that, for being a community that is able to have its head up in, um, in the world and to launch and to move. And there are so many stories of that going on around here. And God, we don't want that to be the only story that we have. We want more. So God, would you bring more to us? Help us to bring heaven to earth in the unique way that you have wired, designed, and gifted us as a community. In your name I pray.
before Jen and I met, um, by the way, the announcements lady is my wife, if you're newer to Brookview. Um, she was working for, so a few months before we met, she was working for this, this like innovative startup company. And the people that were running this thing that founded it and got it off the ground, they really liked her. So they started putting her in charge of more and more, and they started giving her more and more authority and loftier titles. So this is um, 1996. She's 20 years old. And you guys, back then, at this point, she was making over $5,000 a month and climbing. Um, and so they were talking about expanding what they were doing on into Europe, and they asked Jen to think about moving overseas and running one of their overseas offices, like in Amsterdam or Luxembourg or something like that. And so it would have just been like obscene money and amazing authority beyond anything a, a 20-year-old could dream of. But this company was odd. They were kind of secretive about a lot of stuff, and it was run by these young granola anti-establishment people, like, they look like brilliant, free-spirited, earthy, new-age hippie types. You guys know what I mean by granola? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you do. What are some other words for granola? Crunchy. <laughs> Crunchy is like the modern equivalent for a soccer mom, though, and that's not anywhere near the granola of these people. Okay, a little, okay, I'll give crunchy to you. Any other words? Earth, Earth Mother and Birkenstock? I heard Earth Mother. Okay. Earth Mother. Okay. So this is, the, the, most of the people working in this place, this was the vibe. Um, in fact, just to paint a picture, this one coworker came into Jen's office one day, and she was, um, she had this like long, flowing, beautiful dress, very pretty lady. And um, at the top of the dress, it was, it was a tank top. And so when she started talking to Jen, she leaned up against the wall the door frame, and all Jen could see was dark, bushy hair just climbing out of this lady's armpit. And Jen said, it must have been like really hot because it was all sweaty and tangled and mangled and everything. Now, if that's you, you know, nothing against that. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just painting the vibe, okay? So this was a very earthy, very earthy place. There's another lady, one of the like top leaders. In fact, I think she was kind of the partner of like life partner of the founder guy. Um, and, and she had very, like very long, very straight, just beautiful, healthy hair. Um, but it was like right out of the 70s, like parted right down the middle, you know what I mean? Uh, except this was 1996. And so Jan is trying to make polite conversation and she's like, oh, your hair is so beautiful and healthy. And the lady says, thanks. Want to know the secret? And Jen's like, uh, okay. She says, well, what I do is I pee in a jar first thing every morning. <laughs> then, after I shampoo, I pour it in my Harris conditioner. And that's how it stays so healthy and shiny and how, even though it's so long. <laughs> Here, come feel it. <laughs> Jen's like, oh, so th this is the culture. Earthy, anti-establishment, Birkenstock, progressive, new age. But Jenna would often, as she worked, as she would f sense like something's kind of weird. Something's kind of off. There's like kind of a dark vibe. But she was highly valued. She was getting paid big time and she was climbing fast. So she just ignored the feeling and kept her head down. 
Okay, then one year they had a Christmas, like, an, uh, like a company Christmas party, right, at the office. And so everybody's there, maybe 25 employees at that point. And at first, it was just a very normal Christmas party. People are standing around, visiting, drinking cider, champagne, eggnog. But right before it ended, the founder called everybody together, and they turned off all the lights, and they formed a circle, and everybody was given a candle. And the founder asked them to go around and share something bright, maybe about the company or just about life. And Jen thought, okay, this is a little different for an office party, but it's okay, right? So when that finished, then he said, okay, now I'm going to turn over the rest of the night to Sandy. Now, Sandy's not her real name, uh, but she's the pee hair lady, okay? So... Jen had heard that sometimes upper management would go on, quote, retreats, and Sandy would lead them through, quote, spiritual exercises. Now, Jen had never been a part of this stuff until this moment. So Sandy comes up and falls into this deep, trance-like, droning voice, and she starts calling on the spirits, and Jen is like, what is happening? But Sandy just chants on and on and on, beckoning the spirits to come, come spirits. And Jen is looking around the circle. She's looking around like, is this for real? And and so as Sandy calls on the spirits, everyone's face is lit by the candles, and they all seem totally into it, eyes closed, nodding. Everyone's like, mmm, right? And so finally, Sandy gets to the apex of the whole thing, and she says, On the count of three, we're all going to blow out our candles and let the God in each of us enter this world. One, two, three, and everybody blew out their candle, except Jen. (laughs) Right? So it is total darkness, except Jen's face lit up (laughs) by this candle. So everybody, the founder, the pea hair lady, the bushy armpit lady, everybody in the seance circle, they're all staring at Jen. And she's like, well, this is awkward, but I'm not blowing this thing out. I'm not letting my inner God enter the world. I don't even know what that means to these people exactly, but I am confident that it does not align with my faith in Jesus, so I'm not doing it. And with her face lit, she just sat there in awkward silence for several seconds. And everybody's like stunned. They're just staring at her like, this is crazy. So finally, in an act of rebellion, Jen's like, I'm not blowing out my candle. So she, she like licks her fingers and goes, Tsst. So next day, the founder calls her into his office, and he he demands to know why she wouldn't blow out her candle. So she explained that she felt like it was inconsistent with her faith in Jesus. And so he started quoting the Bible to convince her that that it's okay. And she couldn't believe it because she's like, wow, he knew a lot of scripture. So she said, you know, sorry, I disagree. I think you're twisting scripture. But she said, I'm, I'm surprised. Like, you seem to have spent a lot of time, you, you're able to navigate the Bible, and yet you're, you're not a follower of Jesus. Like, you're not a Christian, are you? 
And he said, oh, I'm absolutely not, 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 not a Christian. And Jen said, well, I am, so I'm not doing that stuff. Please don't ever put me in that position again. And the founder, who could have fired her in an instant, looked at her and said, I really wish I could change your mind. I hate what you believe. I hate the Christian faith. But I love how strong you are and how you stand up for what you believe. And that is part of what makes you so valuable around here, so don't change. A couple of months later, Jen arrived to work in the morning like every other day. She got into the parking lot, started, and she noticed a SWAT team storming the place. So there's shouting and there's like machine guns everywhere. Some of her coworkers are in handcuffs. Other ones are, are being detained and they're being interrogated. Computers are being confiscated. It's crazy. Now, Jen didn't go inside. She looked at that and went, huh, wonder what's happening with those people, right? And she was happy to just go home. But she found out later that the Federal Trade Commission had seized everything because apparently the company had violated all kinds of corporate laws and they were doing all kinds of illegal stuff. They were evading taxes, they were sending money to all these different offshore accounts, it was crazy. And so a, a few of the upper management people went to prison and others fled the country. And as Jen and I were talking about this this week, she started looking them up, like they're still out of the country. They're still, this is many years later. So as a result, Jen found a new, much lower paying job. <laughs> and then she met me, and it has been nothing but bliss ever since. <laughs> so today I want to talk about the reality that we all face, we all face pressure. There are times for all of us when we face pressure to compromise what we believe. Now, it might not be as dramatic as a workplace Christmas party seance where the pee here lady is calling on the spirits, right? But we, we all face pressure to compromise. And so we're, we're four weeks into this series that we're, we're calling Exile, Becoming a Creative Minority. And if you, if you haven't been with us, uh, to bring you up to speed, here's the idea. In the U.S., but especially in the Pacific Northwest, we are suddenly living in a new cultural moment. Like the ground underneath our feet has moved, and we are now full on into a post-Christian society. Christians are no longer the majority. We're no longer highly honored. In fact, there is a, now a growing hostility toward Christianity in our culture. More and more, by, by more and more people, we are viewed as the problem in our world. Like there has been a seismic shift and we are, we are not in Kansas anymore. I do wanna point out though, while that shift has happened in Western culture, so like Europe, North America, Christianity is actually exploding in the global East and South. Okay, in places like Asia and South America and, and parts of Africa, it is growing exponentially. The way of Jesus is, is dramatically on the rise worldwide, actually. But we live in the U.S., and, 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 and we live specifically in the Pacific Northwest. So the question is, how do we, as followers of Jesus, live in a post-Christian society? And while this is kind of a new question for many of us, it is not a new question at all in the global historic church. Many followers of Jesus have, have lived in and cultures hostile to their faith. 
For example, I, I want to read you a Christian writing from around 130 A.D. Okay, so think like one generation after the New Testament was written. Um, this is a letter from a disciple of Jesus to an academic elite. Um, some think it, it may have been the tutor of Marcus Aurelius. But this was the heartfelt experience of second century Christians. The author describes what it's like. It says, for Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by our country or by speech or by dress. For they do not dwell in cities of their own or use a different language or practice a peculiar life. But while they dwell in Greek and barbarian cities, according as each person's lot has been cast and follow the customs of the land and clothing and food and other matters of daily life, yet the condition of citizenship which they exhibit is wonderful and admittedly strange. They live in countries of their own, but simply as sojourners. They share the life of citizens. They endure the lot of foreigners. Every foreign land is to them a homeland, and every homeland a foreign land. They spend their existence upon the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. He's saying that, that what sets us apart as followers of Jesus is not, it's not our country. Okay, whether you're American or Mexican or Croatian or Russian or Ethiopian, it's not your ethnicity, your color of skin or your language. It's not your fashion, your dress, your diet, whether you're like a vegan or you eat kosher or any of that. What sets us apart as followers of Jesus is our way of life. But this means that we will often live in attention. Okay, on the one hand, you're a citizen of the U.S. or a citizen of, of whatever country, you're the citizen of that land, but at the same time, you're, you're a sojourner. Like in today's language, you're a refugee or a resident alien. So, so for me, right, I'm a, I'm a U.S. citizen. I've got a passport and everything. But at the same time, my, my primary loyalty is not to the United States of America. My primary loyalty is to Jesus and the kingdom of God. And for many followers of Jesus in many places, this has created all kinds of tension. And for many of us living in this culture that we're now living in, we're feeling this tension growing rapidly. So we're looking at the story of four Jewish exiles living in Babylon. We're following the story of the exiles in the book of Daniel. And they are struggling to stay true to their faith, stay true to their God and their conscience, while simultaneously striving to engage the culture that they're living within as a creative minority. So today we come to Daniel chapter 3. Are you ready? Thank you, Giovanna. The rest of you, come along whether you're ready or not. Here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the Im image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound 
of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to create a society out of captured peoples. People from different nations and languages and cultures and religious backgrounds. He is dealing with the challenges of today what we would call multiculturalism. So Babylon was extremely diverse because whenever they conquered a nation, they brought back the the brightest and best and most beautiful people to Babylon. The idea was, let's become an elite society, a nation of smart, educated, beautiful people. So Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is extremely diverse, different ideologies, languages, values, religions, and he decides our nation needs unity, something to hold us all together. So he has this massive statue created of gold, and we aren't, we aren't actually told what the, the image of the statue embodies. Like, is it Nebuchadnezzar? Is it one of the Babylonian gods? Or what? It doesn't say. Most scholars think that the statue represents Babylon itself, like it represents the nation state. Whatever the image is, it's a national symbol for Babylon. So what they're bowing down to isn't just a 90-foot tall statue of gold. What they're bowing down to is the nation state of Babylon, the greatest nation on earth at the time. And the who's who of Babylon is all assembled before the image, right? The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, judges, magistrates, and all of that. This, this author loves to just keep repeating these lists. If you're a pastor, it gets really tiring to read it. He also repeats and reiterates how many instruments are playing, right? The horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music. Okay, so what's the point? The point is clear. This event is epic, okay? It is a vast sea of the smartest, most educated, most attractive people on earth, and there is pageantry and creativity and energy and national pride. Maybe envision like the opening ceremony to an, an Olympic Games, Uh, maybe combined with like all the nationalism of a presidential inauguration. And on top of that, there's art and there's music. I mean, the music alone, this is like the concert of all concerts, every instrument imaginable. The music is intended to be transcendent. A few years ago, I went to to see U2 at CenturyLink. You guys, it was mind-blowing, spine-tingling, transcendent. 80,000 80, people singing together where the streets have no name, right? With that heavenly guitar intro that just builds and builds and the Seattle skyline and the crowd and it was unreal. Okay, so imagine a Babylonian U2 concert combined with an Olympic ceremony and a presidential inauguration. You got the picture? And if all that is not enough, to inspire people to bow down, Nebuchadnezzar decrees that to fail, that failure to bow will result in being thrown into a fiery furnace. So as the music starts in verse seven, the text 
kind of literally, if you look at literally, it says, as soon as they were hearing, they were falling. It's like a race to see who hits the ground first. And then through the crowd, there's a growing buzz. In this sea of people, the top three government officials, these exiles from Israel, are still standing. Verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, you idiot, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So these three Jewish exiles have recently risen to high positions, right? And the Babylonian officials are not happy about it. And now they see their chance to take these guys down. Verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, this is a rhetorical question. He's not asking them to name a God. He's just pointing out what to him seems obvious. He's saying, understand, I have absolute authority over what happens to you next. So why would you disobey me to honor some God? What God could possibly deliver you from my hand? And yet these guys don't, they don't take the question as rhetorical at all. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is, is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now, I want to pause here because this is, this is a remarkable statement of faith, right? Our God is able to rescue us. He's able to save us from the furnace. Our God is able to deliver us from your hand, O King. Our God is able. And I don't think that we can spend too much time reflecting on that truth. The God that you and I serve, our God is able now, like, I think about my walk with Jesus and, and all he's done for me. And it's a truth that I've, I've seen again and again. He helped me in the beginning overcome insurmountable, what I felt like were insurmountable doubts. He set me free from anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation. He rescued my marriage, gave me this amazing church family, gave our church this building, like just bam, there you go. He enabled our church community to not only prevail, but to flourish through COVID and all the political and social upheaval and the tensions that divided churches and friends and families. 
and he is healing and breathing new life into my son. The kid that I love that was on death's doorstep. And I, I could name a whole lot more. You guys, our God is able. And you know, we, we could do this. We could, we could spend the rest of the morning just kind of going around the room, one by one, telling stories from our lives that reflect this one truth. The God we serve is able. So this, this isn't just like theory. It isn't just like words on a page. Many of you in here have experienced it, and you, and you know it. The God we serve is able to provide for the greatest need. He's able to, to soften the hardest heart. He's able to bring the farthest prodigal rebel back home. So I, I don't know what challenges you're facing these days, but I don't think we can ever cling too tightly to this one truth. Our God is able. So these three guys find themselves in this predicament a king with absolute authority says what god can save you from me you have no choice unless you bow you burn in the furnace this is no time for you to exercise your faith because what god can possibly save you from my hand and despite how hopeless the situation appears they just cling to the one truth the god we serve is able which you guys when you think about it it's extraordinary in its context because God has already refused to rescue them along the way many times. I mean, let's think about, just think about all that led up to this moment. These three young Hebrew men are captured, their families are butchered, their nation is destroyed, and they are exiled to a foreign country. Think they prayed and asked God to deliver them? Through all that loss, they refuse, though, to deviate from their faith in God. They continue serving him faithfully even in Babylon. And God honors, and he moves, and Daniel, Daniel interprets the king's dream, which we looked at last week, and suddenly they're promoted to high positions, and it seems like everything is on the up until one day they hear about a new edict, that all the people must bow to a statue of gold. And so they meet together as a little community, and they pray, and they decide it is unthinkable that we would ever bend the knee to anything but God. So they plead with God to give them a way out, right? All they can do is pray and hope and wait. And so they pray and they pray and they pray. And from the moment they heard about the statue, that's all they did. And they hoped, they hoped that somehow God would intervene and it would never come to this. These guys were praying people. right? They probably prayed that Nebuchadnezzar would come to his senses, that he would revoke this decree. But he didn't. They probably prayed the decree wouldn't be enforced, but it was. Maybe they prayed that because of Daniel's influence, the Jewish people might be excused from it, but they weren't. Maybe they prayed that when the day came, nobody would notice when they failed to bow, or if people noticed, they wouldn't tell. But people noticed. People told. Here's what I'm saying. Since the edict, not one of their prayers was answered. Not one. It takes a long time to build a 90-foot statue of gold. These guys had a long time to pray about this. And at every point, these three men were bitterly disappointed. At every point, their death grew more imminent. And now it seems that every door has closed. It appears they only have two options. Bow to the idol or go to the furnace. And yet, despite all of their previous unanswered prayers, they refused to bow. 
O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from even your hand, O king. Our God is able. They insist. But next comes a statement of what I think is far greater faith. Our God is able to rescue us, verse 18, but even if he does not, don't be deceived. Our God can rescue us from anything, Nebuchadnezzar. The God who drowned Pharaoh's army and fell Jericho's walls and dropped Goliath with a stone, he's lost none of his strength. Our God can rescue us still. But even if he does not, we've already decided and we've already made up our mind. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if he does not, then we will march to our death singing hymns of praise to the only God that we will ever serve or love. You guys, our God is able. He can still move, and he does. And we can go around this room testifying about it. Our God is able to answer some of our deepest prayers. He's able to grant some of our deepest wishes. But what about when he does not? What do you do when he does not? What do you do then? Because here's the thing. If we're honest, pretty much all of us have stuff that we really want God to do. We, we do. And most of the time, as far as we can tell, it's really good stuff. It's the kind of stuff that when we read the Bible and we read about God's heart, we assume God would want to do. Right now, most of you have stuff you really want God to do. You have things you want God to do for you. But at some point, we all have to ask, is my full devotion from one day to the next contingent on just getting from God what I want? And I think of Job, who refused to dishonor God despite, right, like historic intense suffering went on day after day with no relief and no explanation. And I think of Job who said these amazing words, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Saying, where else would I turn? What else would I do? To whom else would I belong? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I think of Esther. We looked at the story a few weeks ago who, like these three men, decided that one day she would confront a tyrant king. She'd attempt to save her people at the risk of her own death, and she said, I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So I just want us to think about real life these days. Where, where are you feeling pressure in your life? Where are the circumstances of your life asking you to bow? Like maybe you're in a, a relationship and you are really drawn to this person. You're just highly attracted to this person and they are, they are great in many ways. But this person doesn't share your core values or your faith or your moral convictions. You can rationalize staying together. Like I may never find someone that I'm so compatible with in so many ways or so attracted to. I may never find someone else. I may never. And listen, God is, God is able, right? That's what we're saying. God is able to bring someone better for you into your life. 
But this morning, I'm, I'm asking you to consider saying, even if he does not, even if God does not bring somebody else into my life, even if it means being alone, I will not bow to this relationship. Now, maybe it involves friends you hang out with or coworkers or something. You know, maybe they gossip a lot or they drink too much or they gossip and drink and drink and gossip or they, they cross other boundaries. But for you to be a part of that group, you feel like you just have to engage in what they do. You have to compromise. There's constant pressure to just bow down to the norms of the group. Look, if, if you set boundaries, God might, God might just move to make the situation better. He's able. Right? Maybe in the end, they'll respect you more because of it. Or maybe you're the catalyst to culture change for the whole group. Or maybe God connects you with a, with a new group of friends or he's able to put you into a new team of people at work or whatever. Our God is able. It doesn't mean he will. So the ultimate question is, will you refuse to bow even if he does not? Maybe it involves your career. Maybe where you work, people cut corners. They do unethical things. It's how the business is done. And maybe you're tempted to just go along with all of that or even try to get ahead using those same strategies. God is able, right? If you say no to that and you, you reject that, God is able. God is able to get you a promotion. God is able to get you transferred. God is able to get you a new job, a better job. God is able to open up a whole new career. But what I, what I want you to wrestle with this morning is, what if he does not? Are you willing to do the right thing, like the God-honoring thing, even if he doesn't give you the promotion? Even if he doesn't give you the better employment situation? We all face pressure to bow the knee to something. And the hope is, if I compromise on this, it's just a little thing, and if I compromise on this, then I can get what I most want. So I, I don't really need God to move because I can get this thing on my own. I just need to bow a little here and I need to bow a little there and I need to bow a little over here and I kind of have to. I really don't have any choice. Where are you facing pressure to bow these days? As Christ followers, we hear, we hear truths about God's faithfulness that start to feel like cliches. Things like, if you do the right thing, God will always honor you. And I just want to say, I wholeheartedly believe that's true. That's ultimately true in the long run. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't allow pain or disappointment or loss along the way. There's, there's an old story about an economist who's a shrewd negotiator, and he tries to make a deal with God. He, he, he sees the verse where it says, To God, a thousand years are like a day. So he says to God, God, is that true? And God says back, yeah, that's true. To me, a million years are like a, like a second. So the economist gets kind of excited about that and says, well, then to you, a million dollars must be like a penny. And God says, well, yes, that's true also. So the economist says, well, then God, could I have one of those pennies? And God says, yeah, no problem. Just wait here a second. We, 
we love to tell stories, right, about how God is able. I mean, it's just, we love the testimonies. We love it. We love it, and we should. But what about when God says, yeah, I'm up to something. Just wait here for a second. Here's the promise that we can cling to. In the end, we will always be blessed. Refusing to bow always, always, always pays off in the end. In time, God always rewards faithfulness and he brings deeper blessings. But what do you do when God says, wait here a second. Like that, see, that's when you find out what you ultimately worship. There will always be blessing, always, but it may not come in the time that you want or in the way that you want. So just one, one really important question with all this. If it may not give you the thing that you want, why is refusing to bow worth it? And I just want to say, because this is how you experience God and his power in your life. We, we like to control our own lives. We like to achieve our own goals. But if you set up life this way, you don't leave very much room for God to move. Like we can spend our whole lives controlling all the little things so that we don't actually need miracles. But then we complain, well, God, where's your supernatural power in my life? So you got to figure out, do, do I want, do you want God's presence and power or do you want control? And again and again, you're going to have to choose. And sometimes it gets ugly before we see God's hand. That's just real life. And Jesus said that we should expect that. But if we refuse to bow, that's when God's presence and his power are availed. And you just think about the example of the one that we follow. When he faced his own version of a furnace that day in the garden, he cried out and he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Right? Save me from this suffering. Father, please find another way. Father, you are able. You are able. But then he resigned. Not my will, but yours be done. I will drink this cup you've given me to the last drop. His, his willingness to drink the cup I think in many ways just mirrored the sentiment of Job. Though he slays me, yet I will hope in him. And the reason for his trust and obedience, I think, is conveyed in his final words, something that he was just so clear about when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus knew who ultimately controlled his destiny. He knew that it wasn't Pilate, it wasn't the leaders of Israel plotting his death. It wasn't the crowds that were yelling crucify. His destiny was in the hands of his loving father. And so was yours. And so was mine. But we trust him. This morning, we're going to take communion as we worship. And we're going to just remember the one that we follow. The one who, like the three on the plains of Dura that day in Babylon, said, I will honor God even if he does not. The greatest influence in, like influencers in history, when you think about it, the greatest influencers in history have refused to bow, despite the cost. 
those who have most been salt and light to our world have stood firm. Like in the power of the Holy Spirit, they have refused to assimilate. They've refused to just go along and do what everybody else does. I mean, you can't change the culture if you're just absorbed right into it. You can't. You have to decide. And these, these are hard decisions, and there's real pressure. And we're not going to get them all right all the time. We're not. But in many ways along the line, we need to begin to refuse to bow. And, and like the three in Babylon, when we do, we have no idea how it's going to turn out. I mean, the, the story of these three goes on, and um, some of you know the ending. Some of you don't. Uh, I'm not going to read it on purpose because, you guys, this is how life goes. You don't know the ending. Um, I encourage those of you that don't know the story to go back and read it later. It is, it's actually, it's awesome. But in real time and real life, we can't know the ending. And so we have to choose. Will I refuse to bow? My God is able, but will I refuse to bow even if he does not? Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to go into a, a like extended time of worship, and um, you can come up and get the bread and the juice, and you can kind of kneel, spend some time in prayer with God. There's also some in the back. I believe there's a gluten-free option in the back as well. Um, but at any point that it makes sense to you, feel free to come um, and just remember who Jesus is. Father in heaven, You are able, and you are good, and you are always working. And we face so much pressure. And like Peter, all of us have failed and, and will fail, and we're not going to get it all right, not by any means. But you're inviting us to grow and mature and get stronger and more courageous and wiser and more faithful. And you're inviting us to be salt and to be light in our world. And we cannot be salt and light if we're just enveloped by whatever the culture is that's going on around us. You're asking us to be set apart in certain ways. And so, God, I pray that you would help us identify places where we're feeling pressure to compromise and that you would speak courage to us and you would speak faith to us. And you would, you would fill us with your spirit and enable us to do what is not even humanly possible. God, help us to honor you even when it doesn't produce immediate results for us at all, even when at times it makes things worse. God, give us, give us the heart of Jesus. Give us the heart of the one that we follow as we seek him.